Morning. morning. Welcome to our 1030 service. Glad to be with you here this morning. I want to begin our uh, service this morning with a prayer. Many of you know, some of you don't. The 22nd of January is Sanctity of Life Sunday. has been for about 40 years. We're churches, uh, mainly across uh, this country anyway. Pray, uh, take time to pray, celebrate life, and pray for the unborn. So if you'd stand with me as we open in a word of prayer this morning. Thank you. Lord, we thank you this morning for the gift of life. Thank you for having a place for each of us in your heart and your plan before any of our days came to be. Thank you that you value us without preference to sex, race, ethnicity, age, ability, any other distinction. You loved us so much that you sacrificed yourself to rescue every single one of us. Lord, we re especially remember today the unborn, and we remember mothers and fathers who have been surprised and fearful when they learn about an unplanned pregnancy. May they all know you see them, you love them, you never leave or forsake those who call on your name. Lord, we know that abortion has hurt many in our community. We know these wounds and fears around them are often poked at by some with agendas of power and profit in our society. Forgive us for at times preferring simply to turn our eyes away. May we remember abortion's toll on children, parents, and our community. May we cherish the voiceless and lovingly help those who hurt to find healing. And may we redouble our commitment to stand beside mothers and fathers who need our help as they care for their children. We pray, Lord, for a culture of life to prevail in this land in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have a seat. This is our third message, if you have been here, some of you have, some of you haven't, in this series that will conclude next week on the gospel and relationships, the gospel and relationships. In this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to talk about marriage, okay, that's the relationship. Next Sunday, in the same extended chapter, we'll talk about singleness, okay, the gospel and relationships, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now let me say this before we dive into these verses. Few passages uh, in the New Testament, um, and in this letter in particular, have been as misunderstood, as we'll see when I read these in a second, and me even abused as this one. Okay, now part of this reason, I mentioned this if you were here the last couple of weeks, is because we're, we're, we're sort of reading um, a letter, we're only getting half of the information, that is to say, the Apostle Paul is responding not every, not every letter is like this, so many of them have occasions and he's solving problems, theological, personal uh, uh, questions that, are, that the early churches are having. But this one in particular, it's unique in the New Testament where we know that Paul got a letter, we just don't have a copy of it. And this letter said, what do you think about this, that, and the other thing? And he's responding, and we'll see that in a minute. So that's one of the things about that challenges this passage. But it's been, in this subject in particular... Okay, as we're talking about relationships, even sex and marriage as an example. It's been misunderstood, it's been abused. And the confusion that this passage has um, uh, resulted in has um, brought about a, a view, I would say, of the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter in a third of your New Testament, um, that he doesn't like women, 
Uh, hey? And is not so, uh, uh, has, doesn't have such a great view of sex. He thinks women are, you know, can be overlooked and are not that important. And that sex is kind of an, uh, an unnecessary evil to be avoided um, at all costs. Let me start by saying that particular view of the Apostle Paul, it's important you know he wrote a lot of your New Testament, is grossly inaccurate. Okay? It is not. Uh, who the Apostle Paul is in reading the scriptures, but often he's thought of that because of a misunderstanding of many, uh, a few texts, this one in particular. Paul, I hope we'll see a little bit this morning, not only shares Jesus' very high view of marriage, but Paul will even go beyond in some ways, what Jesus says, because the Apostle Paul faces situations as we'll see this morning, that Jesus never faced. What do I mean by that? In the sense of the church of Jesus Christ didn't start until Jesus rose from the dead, and all of a sudden people of all kinds of backgrounds come together, like in this community, and certain problems and questions arise, including in the very important part of life, uh, relationships, sex, marriage, etc. So you will see, I think, a little bit in this passage, the Apostle Paul, uh, in hopefully in a different light than some of us, have seen him uh, before. That introduction, uh, let's look at 1 Corinthians 7, a message titled, A Holy Marriage. We looked two weeks ago, if you were here, a message called The Holy Community. We looked last week at a message called The Holy Body. This morning, A Holy Marriage from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 7. Follow along as I read these words. Now, for the matters you wrote about, okay, back to what I was saying, from your letter, Quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, unquote. That came from their letter, a statement. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband in the same way. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent, and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all of you were as I am. I think he means single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift and another has that. A holy marriage. Now, if you were here last week, um, you might think when you read these two chapters side by side, these two messages, that the the Apostle Paul sort of um, has done a sort of about face. You know, like last week he seemed to be saying in this message, in the context of these people who were saying, you know, all things are lawful for me. You know, we can do whatever we want, including how we uh, deal with our, our, our relationships with other people, how we experience sex. Paul seems to be saying one thing there, you might say, as a sort of hard stance on uh, sexual morality. And here, Paul seems to be saying something else, like, you know, those of you who are married, get after it, you know, in a manner of speaking, okay? So you might might say, well, the Apostle Paul is kind of an about face, but I would say this to you. The Apostle Paul hasn't changed his point of view. He is speaking to two distinct groups in his congregation, okay? 
you know, oh, that everyone in any congregation actually held the same point of view, right? It would be much easier to be a pastor if that were the case. But the Apostle Paul had people in his congregation, this young congregation that he started five years earlier about, who had different points of view, different understandings of the gospel, different expressions of the gospel. What were they, okay? The one from last week, I would call them the license or free reign group, right? The license or free reign group. When it came to issues of sexuality, they said, listen, you can have sex with anybody you want to have sex with because the body is morally neutral. If you weren't here last week, go back and look at 1 Corinthians 6, 12. All things are lawful for me. That was their quote. We can do whatever we want. We have a freedom in Christ. All of our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. And the body doesn't matter. Your God saves your soul. Your body doesn't matter. So what you do with your body, including in the area of sex, does not matter. The free reign group. Sex, have sex with whoever you want. The body is morally neutral. Group number two. I would call them, for lack of a better word, the legalists. And they say, don't have sex with anyone because the body, by definition, is morally evil. Right? Back to this dualism. We talked about this last week. Even the, the, the philosophy of the ancient Greeks. The body is bad. Material is bad. Spirit is good. So, in other words, avoid it at all costs. Okay? That's what we're talking about here. In fact, the quotation that I just read, as quotes around it, the end of verse 1, would come from this second group. Trying to lay the context for you. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That's what this community was saying. They were basically, in in response to an over-sexualized culture, this group, maybe even the leaders of this church, were trying to ban sex altogether. Listen, wait for it. Even for married people. Okay, that's what Paul means in in verse 2. He said, listen, because sexual immorality is happening, that is, people, back to the last chapter, are going out and having sex outside of marriage. We need to get back to husbands have relations with their wives, and wives ought to have relationships with their husbands. Okay, that's the interpretation of the first two verses. They said, listen, sex is bad, don't have it even in marriage. Imagine. Because these are both gross misunderstandings of the gospel. But the Apostle Paul is not supporting that view It's good that a man uh, not have uh, sexual relations with his wife or her wife with her husband, okay? That's not his view. He's not supporting that view. He is rejecting that view as a gross misunderstanding of the gospel. And he offers, in these few verses, a counter-argument, okay? This counter-argument. Married couples ought to have regular physical intimacy Wait for it, as a way to stay holy. That's what he's saying. Isn't that unbelievable? Hard to believe, but that's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you need to not have less sex, husbands and wives. You need to have more. Can I get an amen? I don't know. All right. You guys are sleeping here. All right, come on. All right, now, that's what he's saying. But listen carefully. He's saying... More, not less, as God designed it, in a manner of speaking. Point one, a holy marriage is characterized by self-giving. A holy marriage is characterized by self-giving. The Apostle Paul's vision 
of sex and marriage in these verses, maybe we didn't catch it reading it as we just did. I would say to you, it was remarkable and it was certainly revolutionary in his day. Certainly revolutionary in his day. Probably ours as well. What do I mean by that? The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. Now, every guy in ancient culture not only would have said a hearty amen, it would have been an afterthought. In other words, it was common understanding. Women did not have the right to vote. Women could not go to to, to, to study, uh, uh, go to college or the version of college. Women were legally seen as property. So for the Apostle Paul to say, I'm talking about in the culture, not so much the church, it's brand new. Church has different values. But the wife does not have authority of her own body, but yields her husband. Yeah, what else you got? We know that. But the rest of chapter verse 4, when he says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Let me tell you something. That was revolutionary. Because women were property. That was a, that was a, um, a major blow to the common understanding in this culture that men, even married men, could have multiple partners. No one's going to uh, 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 discourage that. No one's going to call them out, right? As I even said last week, even prostitution in ancient Corinth was not this secret um, shameful thing as it is in most cultures, even in this one, but it was something that was fine. It was a part of life. People understood it was socially acceptable for, wait for it, men. But women in this culture, it's a different story. If a woman had multiple partners, in or outside of a marriage, she was was despised. It was shameful. Think John chapter 4, the woman at the well. They were ostracized. So for Paul to say, by the way, yes, a woman's body, in a sense, um, is her husband's, uh, uh, has a certain authority over it, but the wife has authority over her husband's body was revolutionary, revolutionary, right? Yet, the focus here is on responsibility rather than rights for married couples. Through the marriage vow, each person relinquishes, this is what Paul's saying, the exclusive right to their body in an act of mutual submission. Not just marriage, but you could even say sex and marriage. It is an act of mutual submission toward the creation of a higher love. An act of mutual submission towards the creation of a higher love. Now, the same guy who wrote these words wrote these words. First, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 5, which any Bible, a student, scholar would tell you, is the most extensive passage in really the whole Bible, but certainly New Testament, on the meaning of marriage. Buckle up for these words. And let me say this. If you are married, listen carefully. If you're thinking about getting married, listen carefully. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay? That's a whole sermon in itself. All this discussion and talk and whoop-de-doo about wives submitting to their husbands and husbands and being the head of the home could go away overnight if people actually understood what we're talking about. Submit to one another. Why? Because of this reason or that reason, men are more important than women, women are more important. No, out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church, 
submits to Christ and everything. Uh, excuse me, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their own husbands and everything. Everyone, all, all men, you know, if only to stop there, you know. Verse 26, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. To make her holy, to make her holy, to make her holy. That's the purpose. Cleansing her by the washing of water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish. Let me unpack all those beautiful little metaphors. It says, men, you need to be spiritual leaders in your home. That's what he's saying, okay? As Christ leads the church. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Now watch this. For this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. For this reason, as we did last week, we see here in this week, he goes back to the original purpose statement of marriage in the first place, Genesis 2. Nothing's changed. In that sense, from the old covenant to the new covenant. The purposes of marriage are based for this reason. What's interesting about this very big passage we just read? For this reason. Okay? This passage doesn't say anything about having children. Certainly an important part of marriage, procreation. But it doesn't even mention that here. Okay? It's just one of the many reasons for marriage. It also doesn't mention anything in this particular passage that we just read about um, physical intimacy. What is the reason that a man and a woman get together and submit themselves out of reverence for Christ? Holiness. To make her holy. This is the ultimate purpose of marriage. Holy marriage is characterized by self-giving. Once you give yourself to someone in marriage, Paul is saying, sex is a way of maintaining and deepening that union as the years go by. You could almost say that the sex in marriage is a way of renewing the covenant as a husband and wife, which is why Paul says you need to do more of it, not less. You are renewing the covenant because it's an act of self-giving, or it should be, between a man and a woman. Holy marriage is characterized by self-giving. Second, a holy marriage is built on a deep faith in God. Paul encouraged in these verses, okay? Married couples to practice regular sexual intimacy, abstaining only for focused times of prayer. Do not deprive each other, in this case he's talking about sexual intimacy, except perhaps by mutual consent, okay? Not one person, it's both. For a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Why do we have to devote ourselves to prayer? Then come together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Let me tell you why, or one of the reasons why. The culture's not your only problem, right? I'm talking about the value system that we live in. There's another thing, right, called spiritual uh, personified evil. And personified evil is also after your marriage. Why, does, why, did, why would the devil, if there's a devil, I, I believe in the devil. Why would, why, would the, why would the devil care so much about marriage? Who cares? What's the big deal? Let me tell you what. We just read it in Ephesians chapter 5. 
The closest thing to understanding the covenant relationship between Christ and his church, between Jesus Christ and me as a sinner, is the way a husband and wife relate to each other. The greatest image, it's imperfect, that we have in the world today of what it means that God, of the covenant love that God has for people is a good marriage. That's why. That's why. Right? Paul encouraged them. Prayer was very at the heart of the one flesh relationship is a deep spiritual unity that must be nurtured and developed between husband and wife, as we just read in Ephesians 5. The love at the heart of marriage is modeled on the covenant love of Jesus and his church, and it must be developed and protected. Protected, right? Spiritual uh, protection. In the, and it's only done the, through the pursuit of a deep faith in God. Right? That's the thing that your most your husband most needs, ladies. That's the thing that your wives need most, guys, is a spiritual protection. Are you praying about it? Is it a priority for you? It should be. I did a funeral one month ago, about today, in this uh, room, Fran Passero. Some of you may know Fran Passero. Her husband, Gary, longtime members of this church. And it was a beautiful funeral. Probably the biggest funeral I've ever done, or one of. I don't there was uh, barely an open seat in this room. And it was a great honor to this couple, 59 years in marriage. It was a great uh, honor to Fran, her children honored her. What you would expect, a great honor to her, but what you wouldn't have expected, very surprising to me, in addition to all these beautiful testimonies, they handed out, everyone that walked in the room, two-page document, small type, or two pages, of a testimony about the 59 years of their marriage, which included... The fact that that was very rocky at about midterm, that where there was a looming divorce about midterm, they chose to hand this out, and that at this rocky midterm season that they were going through, Gary became a follower of Jesus Christ, midlife. And about two years later, as it turned out, Fran became a follower of Jesus Christ. And then the document said this, I'm reading from it. After this, God began to heal their marriage. God enabled Fran to forgive Gary for many hurts. And to fall in love again with him. After almost 25 years of marriage, they had a new beginning. And were finally able to say they were happily married. From that point on in their lives, now listen carefully, until earlier this month, it's about 24 years, when sickness and death prevented it, Fran and Gary started each day in prayer. Now, I'm thinking to myself as I'm preparing for this message. Really? So I called Gary on the telephone. I'm sharing this with permission. I said, Gary, let me ask you a question. You know, this was not secret because he handed this out to, you know, 900 people or whoever was in this funeral. And I said, did you actually start every day in prayer in the last 24 years of your 59-year marriage? He said, yes, we did. Prayer was everything. It covered all the hurts. And we built on it, a new, through it, a new relationship. He said this, it was, that time in prayer, it was the redefinition in our lives. That's what he told me. I said, really, what did you pray about? I asked him. He said, we would get together every morning in their living room. And he said, we started praying for each other. And he mentioned the fruits of the Spirit. I go, what do you mean? He goes, We're praying, we pray for each other's spiritual growth. 
for love, joy, peace, goodness, temperance, uh, gentleness. He just rolled this off his tongue. Self-control. Then we would pray for our adult children and their spouses and their walk with Christ. We would pray for our many grandchildren as they came and more came. And we would pray for our lost, uh, spiritual lost friends in our lives. Now, those of you who know um, Gary and Fran, if you do, some of you do, they, out, out through their many, many years, 25 years of walking with Jesus together, they, lo- they love the Word of God. They're very uh, committed uh, fo- uh, students of the Bible in many ways. They're very big servants, not just in the church, but outside the church in a number of ministries. Their names come up all the time. But Gary said to me, by far the most important thing they did in their 24-year marriage since they became Christians was this time of prayer every day. He said it enhanced, it enhanced and strengthened us in every way. Wait for it. It's what he said to me on the phone. Including the quality of our love life. That's what he told me. Right? A holy marriage is built on a deep faith in God. Right? Paul says, listen, ladies and gentlemen, right? Husbands and wives, I'm talking about. This is about marriage. He's talking to married people in this case. He's, Listen, you don't need to have less physical intimacy. You need to have more of it. But the most important thing that you can do to enhance every area of your life is be committed to your walk with God. That is the secret of a deepening lifelong marriage. A holy marriage is characterized by self-giving. A holy marriage is built on a deep faith in God. This is my question to those married in this room. Do you have one? Is it your top pursuit? And lastly, a holy marriage never gives up on hope. A holy marriage never gives up on hope. Now, follow me if you can. In the final section, the Apostle Paul is going to address a problem that Jesus never addressed. Okay? Remember, Jesus was talking to people before, mainly Jews, covenant people in the Old Covenant, talking to them in preparation for the launch of the church of Jesus. Once the church launched, all kinds of different scenarios happened, including mixed marriages. What do I mean by mixed marriages? That is, Christians and non-Christians, right? Because no one's a Christian The church starts, people become Christians, but just because Mrs. Smith becomes a Christian doesn't mean Mr. Smith's going to do it, and vice versa. And Paul had a church full of people, more than one, that had this situation. It's a new circumstance. Yet, in responding to this circumstance, right, he's going to say, I would say, some profound things about the covenant of marriage and the potential of marriage even for people who are both Christians. The things he's going to say in these verses have profound um, significance for Christian marriages as well as a mixed marriage that is a Christian. Listen carefully, verse 12. To the rest I say this. He's addressing different situations in this chapter, all under the context of marriage. I, not the Lord. What an interesting statement. The Apostle Paul, man, he's out there on a limb, right? He's saying, listen, Jesus didn't have this problem, so I'm going to do my best to honor the teachings of Jesus, but I, not the Lord. In other words, I don't have a verse from the Gospels for you, but I'm going to do my best. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, 
he must not divorce her. You say, that's strange counsel, but see, not when the church is just starting because everything's new, right? Everything's new. Your wife comes home and says, oh, by the way, I, 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 I did something else today and I met this guy named Jesus Christ or, the, or the, his followers and I'm a Christian and, I don't, and I'm breaking all the booze bottles. I mean, whatever it is they're doing. And the husband's like, what are you talking about? You know, uh, I'm throwing a TV out or whatever. I don't know, whatever, your, whatever their choices are. In other words, their lives were different, okay? Their lives were different. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. Watch this. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her husband. In other words, the believer's having a spiritual influence on the unbeliever, but then he takes it one step further. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. That's a Bible way of saying through this one person. Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith. Their spiritual power, presence, commitment has an influence on everyone else in the home. Even the children are made holy just through the presence of this one person. This is a pretty big deal. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. Okay, in this case, as the church is beginning. The brother or sister is not bound by such circumstances. If your husband or wife says in this context... This is the craziest thing I ever heard. I can't live with you. Paul's saying, okay, we wanna, we're called to peace. Now watch this, though. How do you know, wife, whether or not you can save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether or not you can save your wife? A holy marriage never gives up on hope. Okay? Never gives up on hope. Now, let me say a couple things quickly to... Make sure I can keep my job, okay? <laughs> First one is this. When he say two things he's not saying in this passage, okay? It's important you understand the context, right? Because you might be thinking, wow, this is, what he's saying is, hey, you know, uh, there's a good chance a, a believer can influence a non-believer. So um, if you're a young person in this room, or just even a, not a young person, but a non-married person, hey, can I marry, can I, should I date or marry a non-Christian? Why not? Who knows whether or not your influence may turn them. It's not what he's saying. He's talking to people already in that situation. In fact, he will speak in very strong terms to the same congregation. Note taker, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, to say, listen, if you're single or single again and you're a Christian, strongly discourage you from dating or marrying a non-Christian. Why? Because God doesn't love non-Christians. We know he doesn't. He loves them more than you and I ever thought about loving them. It's, he's saying, listen, marriage on its face is an uphill climb and a challenge for the two of the greatest people going. And therefore, if you want your marriage to experience what God intended it to, covenant marriage, you need to choose somebody who is also has your value system in a manner of speaking uh, in your faith. Okay, so that's not what he's... The second thing he's not saying is that if you choose to hang in there with your non-believing spouse or even your believing spouse who's not so hot on Jesus is not as you are, that it's a guarantee they're going to turn around. He's not saying it's a guarantee they're going to turn around, which is why he says, who knows, oh wife, whether or not you'll save your husband. Paul says, I don't know. Or who do you know, or how do you know, husband, whether or not you'll save your wife. It's not a guarantee. However, what he is saying, what I want to say to us is, do not underestimate what God can do through the faithfulness of one person. That's what he's saying. 
Okay? Do not underestimate what God can do through the faithfulness of one person. It was believed by this congregation, who are ready to you know, throw off their unbelieving spouses, that over time, think about this, if you read this book clearly, the unbeliever is going to overwhelm the believer. In other words, they're going to taint you, so get rid of the unbeliever. And Paul's saying the exact opposite. He's saying it's not so much that the believer is put into the realm of sin. Oh no, my life's getting tainted by my now unbelieving husband or wife. But that the unbeliever is being influenced and brought into the realm of grace. In other words, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's what he's saying. But you've got to have the courage, the character, the love to want to see that true. Okay, now, back to Gary Pastor. So I say to Gary, Gary, think of this passage. I said, so you told me you had this rough and tumble life. You're out looming for a divorce. And if you read the, 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 the passage, the reasons they were thinking about divorce was not because of her bad behavior, but because of his. It's in the, it was in there. I have permission to share this now. I said, what was those two years like when you were a Christian and she wasn't? He goes, they were very difficult. <laughs> they weren't that great. I said, why? Because many, many times she said to me, thinking about their life, here's this guy praying in the living room. Uh, uh, you call yourself a Christian? What about that? What about that? What about that? Okay, they've been married for 24 years. He kept doing it. But he said, near the end of those two years, before she became a Christian, it was a practice he started before she was a Christian, she came into that living room, sat down with him, and began to pray with him. And then some months later, she became, what's my point, Rob? The work of God did not stop when Fran became a believer. It only increased and became the power source of their marriage, listen, for the next 25 years. A holy marriage is built on a deep faith in God, and a holy marriage never gives up on hope. If, if this is true for a non-believer and a believer, certainly true for two believers, right? The unbelieving spouse is sanctified through the wife. The unbelieving husband is sanctified through her husband. Unbelievable. Okay, unbelievable. It was the power source of their marriage for the next 20. So here's what we want to do. We saved a few minutes in this service. We're going to take some time right here, right now. Elders, this is your notice. Please come forward to just pray for marriages in this church. Okay? Whether those marriages need healing, whether these marriages need encouragement. Maybe your marriage is awesome and all you want is to be blessed. Okay? By coming up here in a minute or two, you're not saying my marriage is in trouble. You're saying I'm married or, and, and, and I need some help, I need healing, I need a new sense of hope. We need, uh, we're, we're just looking to, hear, to experience a new vision. Maybe for the next 25 years or more, depending on how long or short you've been married. So we want to do right here in this moment, we, wanna, we, we want to um, pray for you. We saved a little time and we're going to have a, a song behind it. But let me read this quote from a book as we prepare. This is a book I would recommend to all of you, married or single. Even if you're thinking about getting married, it couldn't be a better book. There are many. Mike Mason, it's an older book. It was written about, gosh, 30 or 40 years ago called The Mystery of Marriage. Here's what he says. The truth about marriage 
is that it is a way of not avoiding any of the painful trials and subtractions of life, but rather of confronting them, of exposing and tackling them. It is a way to meet suffering personally, head on, with a peculiar directness characteristic only of love. It is a way of living with no other strategy or defense than love. And so it is a gradual unfolding of an amazing process of interpersonal, listen, consecration, of interpersonal consecration, is what Paul's saying here, in which all the pain locked up in two self-centered lives is no longer hidden or suppressed, but rather released so that the hands of love, in the hands of love, it might be used as, watch this, the raw material for sanctification, Right? Who do you know, oh husband, that you will not have a deeper influence on your wife's spiritual growth in Jesus? Who do you know, oh wife, that you will not have a greater influence on your husband's uh, 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 spiritual commitment to Jesus? How do you know you won't? Okay? Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep following Jesus and keep praying for each other. And what we want to do, okay, in just these few minutes, okay, we have time, is invite you. Now, you could be a husband and wife. Come on up. You could come up. You're, you're here without your spouse. Come up. You're someone who's young and is thinking about getting married. Come up. Um, and uh, we just want to pray for you. you don't have to, we're, not, we're not asking anyone to tell their stories. Okay, you don't have to, all you need to say is, my name is Mike and, uh, and Mary, whatever your name is, and let uh, me and these uh, leaders put a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. Amen? Amen. Amen.